Hi everyone, this is Todd with the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, I thought I'd do something special and share an interview that I did with Mick Rowland of mick-rowland.com. He is an author and a blogger, and we got to talk a little bit about the power of the Prepper community. And so I hope you enjoy it. Um, the The podcast is going to start just abruptly because I edit it to the point where we really start talking. And so I hope you find it enjoyable. Here we go. Uh, one of the things was people would talk about the lone wolf and people would talk about bugging out. They'd go out into the woods and they'd survive out there and, and that's what they would wind up uh, doing. And uh, I know that that has that idea has pretty much kind of gone out uh, the window as far as people understanding that there's a big need to have other people there with you. Not only if you're out there by yourself, you are uh, pulling, uh, you know, watch, you are building your shelters, you are looking for food, you're maintaining your fire, you got water, you got all these things that you're trying to take care of. And so they realize that, you know, it's not, that's not one that uh, you or you have to at least be very highly skilled to be able to do that. Um, and then so lately, I know throughout the years, the last couple of years, I've been reading more and more uh, and posting articles on Prepper website about mutual assistant groups and people joining together and building community. And so that's kind of like where we're at there, not necessarily talking about mutual assistant groups, but building community for a time where uh, time gets you know hard and rough. And so uh, it, I want to ask you that question here. You know, why, um, why is community important? Can you share that with us? Well, you sort of touched on it with the uh, the not the lone wolf is that in a an SHTF situation, there's a whole lot to do. And one person really can't do it all. Uh, so you end up needing more people. And even then, you need people with different skills, different things that they can bring to the, uh, to the mix. Uh, uh, you know, having a a group of 12 snipers is great if you have somebody to snipe, but, you know, they're going to have to eat. You're going to need a doctor. So, you know, you want to have the, the mixed skills for uh, a community. But, you know, a community is actually going to be more than just uh, a group of people with uh, a collection of skills. Because, I mean, even a, a recon squad, they try and mix up their skills so that they've all got a something but they're not really a community. They're not staying there in any one place. They're not building anything. They've usually just got a job to do, get in, get out. So uh, community gets a, a lot bigger and being more permanent. If that helps. Awesome. Well, you definitely, you know, you have some insight here. So I know that you've been in the preparedness community for a while. I know that you've been prepping for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about... Uh, your preparedness, your preparedness journey as we get started on this interview? Sure, I guess. Uh, I was thinking about it, I don't know, a little while ago, kind of wondering, well, when did all that begin? And I'm casting back into childhood. I thought, well, you know, I've always been kind of a little geeky that way anyway, into survival-y stuff. I didn't really think about it. I was in Boy Scouts, so maybe that's where it started. But I was thinking back to, uh, you know, the midnight movies that I liked to watch when I was a kid. And a lot of them that I liked tended to have kind of a survival theme to them. Didn't notice it at the time, but like uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Ever seen that one? No, not, I've never seen that one before. No, 1964. But basically an astronaut crashes on Mars and all he's got is whatever's left out of the ship that he crashed with. 
And it ended up being a movie pretty much about the rule of threes, except he even had to do air. So he had to find air, he had to find water, he had to find food. And then, of course, some aliens come and attack, and he has to escape the aliens. So, you know, as a kid, that was the best part. But looking back on it, I thought, well, I was kind of always into uh, the sort of survival-y themes, even if I had no idea. But, uh, you know, that continued. But I guess the more significant leap into prepperdom was probably uh, because of a, an ice storm in the 1990s, mm. where uh, we were all trapped as a family of four in the house, and power goes out. It was out for many days. Well, we had a fireplace, but we didn't have any wood. So we had to go out in the woods and scrounge up deadfall so we could burn that for heat. So we all camped in sleeping bags out in front of the fireplace. Of course, water's not running, so we had to get uh, buckets of snow and melt them by the fireplace to, uh, to get water. And, uh, yeah, we could do a little campfire cooking over the fireplace. So, yeah, we... We sort of made it work. My wife had a couple of oil lamps that she thought were just decorative, but they turned out to be really handy. Wow. And we were playing board games with the kids, and they uh, they thought it was all a great adventure as opposed to a, a freak-out event. In fact, they liked it so much that uh, for years afterwards, they would say, can we have an old electricity night? <laughs> and we'd have to turn off the power and all the TV, everything is off, and we'd play board games by oil lamp light. So uh, that was kind of the start was after that storm had passed and figuring, well, you know, there's got to be a better way to get heat. So we got a wood stove and uh, started storing water so we didn't have to melt snow. And so that was kind of the uh, the thing that started it. Okay, can I ask you a, a quick question as, as you're yeah. talking about that? I was thinking as a father who has you know you kids and you're you're there and you're you're making do with what you have and you have the fireplace and you're doing all that did it ever concern you where you you know the the situation that you were in is like hey you know what this could be bad this could get bad pretty quickly were you ever in that mindset at all i don't remember being in that mindset maybe probably because i had the fireplace and I thought, well we've got that we can you know, we can burn something Okay. And so we we can stay warm, and I we and I knew we could melt snow, and so I don't know. It was just uh, sort of instantly the mind went to all sorts of alternatives as opposed to uh, running in circles, screaming. Okay, all right. Just just curious how that you know how that pops up, and if that ever was uh, was a concern, you know, the, thinking that way. But all right. So sorry to interrupt you. Go for it. Oh, well, that's all right because uh, it was actually more like the aftermath was after getting all through it, then it was uh, kind of the realization that, you know, that was a whole lot harder than it needed to be. And that if I just had some more stuff, if I was a little bit better prepared for whatever, and ice storms happen in New England pretty frequently, so it's not like it's a total surprise. Uh, so started uh, getting a little more set up with, uh, like you say, stored water. Although then when we moved to this house, it had a, a shallow well I could put a hand pump on so I didn't have to store as much. But then I think the next uh, increment along the way was uh, Y2K. Mm. And uh, with Y2K, it's not like anything necessarily happened, but what it did was it kind of revealed how fragile everything was yeah. and how it could all be you know, a complete power outage for any number of reasons, for anywhere along the way, there's a whole lot of dominoes that could start falling. And so that kind of got me to thinking, well, maybe even in the summertime, I could have power outages or it could be 
out for a longer time. There's there's just a whole lot more that could go wrong that the Y2K thing sort of uh, opened my eyes to. Mm-hmm. So then I started getting a little more serious about, uh, well, I'd say the, uh, the pump on the well so I don't have to melt snow anymore because that kind of stinks. Five gallons of snow only gives you, you know, it's not much water. So uh, now I'm doing things such that, well, like the last time the power went out, it was kind of like, okay, well, the power's out, no big deal. So we had our little routine, things to follow, light the oil lamps and get the generator out so it can run the fridge. And life goes on, a little darker, but life goes on. Awesome. So that's kind of, uh, that was about that. Awesome. Well, that's, uh, that's a good, so you've been prepping for a while, definitely, if uh, Y2K uh, you know, is, is coming up. And uh, that was part of it. I do remember Y2K. Uh, I do remember the um, kind of the fear because there was the buildup, and, and you've heard so many things since then. Uh, people, some people were saying like, "Hey, there was really a big concern about computer." I mean, there was there was computer people behind the scenes doing a lot of work to get things, uh, the infrastructure, to get it up to speed. Uh, I know my dad at that point had a business, and he had an old. Uh, basically you know a computer running a dos program and we didn't know if that was going to make it or not so when we first time we booted it up i just changed the date and it seemed to work it didn't have any problem whatsoever but uh, i do i do remember that i do remember this the clock striking 12 and uh taking that sigh of uh uh that breath of relief that you know everything is going to be all right and everything but uh, you know it did open up you start talking about at least it opened up the idea of how fragile our world is and our our life or our world has become even more fragile now there's just so many things that are kind of up in the air can you talk to us a little bit about why people should be concerned about shtf in an shtf scenario um some things maybe that we we haven't uh, the, the the person out there just kind of thinking about it maybe casually really hasn't thought about. Well, that fragility, as you talked about, that's kind of the key to why you need to be concerned about it. Because uh, like with Y2K, we found out, or at least they were warning us, you know, there's a whole lot of these systems that are doing everything from airplanes to water pumps to everything that if any one of those has this problem, then it's going to be this great cascading collapse of errors and... While the Y2K thing went away, the fragility never did. You know, the system is still fragile. And as we'd seen, like, with the uh, the housing bubble and uh, the financial collapse, you know, the financial markets aren't in uh, any particularly robust shape either. And so there's just a whole lot of things that are out of our control. And we, you know, we can't hold the grid together to make electricity come out. We can't keep the bond market from collapsing. There's just a lot of stuff that's out of our control. And rather than just be a leaf in the wind and take it, you know, the, uh, the better option is to take control of what you can and be a lot, well, as independent or less dependent on all of those fragile systems so that if they want to crash, yeah, it's bad, but it's not like it's sucking me down the drain with it. Mm-hmm. So better to be ready than not. I think that's a good way of looking at preparedness and what we do is building layers uh, into our preparedness because of the systems that are out there, uh, whatever that might be. And uh, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. And you're right. Um, just like going back to your scenario of when uh, before your, your pre-prepping days, right, when you lost 
um, power in that ice storm and your family got around the fireplace and all those types of things. There are ways that uh, people are going to make do. There's ways that people are going to figure out how to do things. Uh, you know, people aren't dumb. Um, they're going to find a way to survive. Uh, but, well, to a point, um, there's a lot of things that, you know, we can't uh, handle. Definitely sanitation, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, they're, having the gear does make it a lot easier. It does make life a little bit more bearable when you're in those situations. And so um, definitely fragile, fragile world that we live in and building as much as you can into your preparedness uh, definitely helps out. And you know, one of the things that I always, and I want people to understand this, is because there's, there's a lot of people out there, and I know I talked about lone wolf going out into the woods and bugging out, but there's a lot of people that are, that are preppers and they see the, the world around them but maybe their family doesn't buy into it. And they're really doing it out of a concern and a love for their family. I'm sure there's some people that are doing it because they love firearms and maybe they love the outdoors and they love, uh, you know, they love camping and all that kind of stuff. But there's that real concern for family and you want them to be at the best that they can be. You don't want to see them suffering and all that kind of stuff. Um, does that ever play into maybe your thoughts of, of what you do is, uh, you know, I, I don't know your family situation, but um, does that ever come into any of your thinking there for preparedness? Yeah, the, uh, the tendency, I mean, so quite a few of the articles that uh, you'll post on the Prepper website uh, tend to take a uh, a pretty terrified look at the world and are sort of uh, always anticipating the zombie apocalypse and that kind of uh, fear. Now, granted, they didn't just get there overnight, but that sort of fear tends to freak other people out that aren't preppers. Mm-hmm. And uh, makes you sort of a a tinfoil hat type and they kind of want to walk away, back away smiling because, you know, they think you're going to lose it. And so avoiding that is always good. If, you know, you have family that aren't really on board yet is uh, don't go for the tinfoil hat type topics. Uh, But the the easier way, I think, to get it in is, uh, is focus more on the short term prepping. Because, you know, prepping sort of falls into two categories, two big categories. There's short-term prepping where you're really just trying to hunker down through the ice storm or through the hurricane, and you know you're going to come out the other end, and life's going to return to normal. So you really are just making sure you can get through the gap back to normal. And prepping for that, well, that's not quite so irrational, and people can see a practical side of it, so it's an easier sell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you need to do that anyway. But... The the other side of that, though, is beyond, and that's kind of where I was, too, that after I thought, well, I've got a generator, I've got water, I've got things set up in the house, we could make it certainly easier than FEMA's three days, we could go a couple of weeks, would be good. But then I started kind of thinking, well, what happens after the two weeks? You know, when the 10 gallons of generator gas is gone, what happens when the lamp oil runs out? I mean, it's, I started thinking, well, what happens after that? And it's in those longer-term scenarios that that's uh, more where my focus has been for the past few years is looking at the long-term and saying, well, if I had to do that for a long-term, what am I going to need to have? And you, have, you go through the list and you figure out, well, if I'm going to need my own food because there's no Piggly Wigglies open anymore, <laughs> then I'm going to have to start growing it. And that's a full-time job. 
and taking care of the house and all the other things there are, that's kind of back to where the community part comes in is that when you look at, if you're going long term, so you're going to be growing your own food, taking care of your own animals, trying to fix your own house, mend your own kids' skin knees, trying to do everything all at once. It's just way more than any one person is going to be able to handle. And community gives you the ability to not have to do it all simultaneously. So there's an advantage when you start thinking long term. The lone wolf thing really doesn't pan out. You just end up being a really hungry lone wolf. <laughs> but the, uh, the community part lets you specialize in something that you do and your neighbors need. Your neighbors are doing something that you could use. So you're not having to do everything. Now, you end up doing a lot of it is DIY anyway, just to take care of yourself and your family. But you're not, I don't have to have goats and raise goats to get milk. Somebody else can specialize and have all the goats, and I'll trade him something else for some of the milk. So you end up with uh, a more of a, a local economy. Because uh, you and I were talking earlier about how uh, – Nowadays, we don't really have community with each other. You don't really know your neighbors. I mean, we lived in an apartment building. We had no idea who lived in any of the other apartments. It was just a lot of people in a box. We had no idea who they were. <coughs> but the, uh, the society we live in now, is it's all diffused. Uh, as I was mentioning before, the, uh, the idea of the economy, I go to Walmart and I buy a T-shirt. Well, I came from China. I have no society. I have no connection with the guy who made the shirt, and even for the people in Walmart, you know, we're we're not. There is no uh, no fellowship with them. And then on the other hand, you have society where, like, I go to church, and we've got a group of people there, or the historical society. We form little groups, but we don't really have anything to do with each other other than that group. Well, in the sense of community, you'd have both that. I'm fellowshipping with these people their day-to-day, but I'm also trading with them. I'm I'm their customer. They're my customer. And when you have that shared society and economy, you end up with more like what community used to be before we got all diffused and sort of separated into our own little Facebook worlds where uh, you can see uh, people at a restaurant and they're all working on their phones. (laughs) They're in the same building. They're in the same booth, but they're not in the same planet because they're all somewhere else. So uh, community is kind of the opposite of that. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you've, you we've headed that way because that's the whole purpose of, of our Facebook Live tonight. Um, wh- what's it going to take for for preppers to or for people to, to, to build that community? Um, I know that you've explored this a little bit in your books and, and uh, you've thought about this. Um, wh- why... You know, we've talked a little bit about why it's important, but how do we go about doing this? You know, what's the easy way? Um, I know that there's a lot of preppers out there who understand how important it is, but they're having trouble finding the people to connect with. And so what would you say to that? Well, if we did have an SHTF event, uh, more than likely you're going to be stuck with whoever's around you. Uh, I think uh, Tim Gamble had a, a post on the website uh, Monday, I think, where he was talking about get out and get to know your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Well, he was kind of doing it more with to find out who who's going to be a potential prepper, going to be a friend or an ally, and that's always a good thing too. But if you were to sort of play the scenario and say, well, let's just say the EMP happened 
tomorrow and I'm home and the neighbors are all home. I'm stuck with whoever they are. Now what am I going to do with them? And it's a little bit of a, a social MacGyver kind of situation where you have to say, well, who are they? What sort of skills do they have? More than likely they've got some, as you had mentioned before, uh, like with the ice storm, people improvise, people get by, they find a way to do something. I mean, there's a few of them that are kind of just potted plants and not a whole lot of use for anybody. But by and large, you know, a, a dad with two small kids, he's going to figure out to do something. And so taking off of Tim Gamble's idea is to start to look at your neighbors as, well, what if we had that sort of economy and society? What have I got as a surplus? What could I produce that would be of any benefit to them? And then what could they do that would be of any use to me? And start to figure out what could what are, well, what good are we to each other? And look for skills, like I've got a neighbor across the road that's a plumber. Well, if things go really bad, I'm not going to remodel my bathroom. Mm -hmm. But plumbing skills, that could be a useful thing. So just knowing kind of where that fits in, uh, that's kind of part of the uh, getting to know the neighbors would be do a little recon on who they are if they're going to be your your customers or they're going to you're going to be their customer. What are you going to do? You know, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because a lot of the times preppers are, you know, in the articles that we put out and we talk about and all that kind of stuff is we're trying to form mutual assistant groups. We're trying to form that great group. And I guess if you have a retreat area and everyone can bug out at the right time and, and uh, the stars align and the angels sing and everything works out perfectly, everyone winds up at that you know bug out retreat and, and everyone is good. And you have you know uh, James Wesley Rawls Patriots you know, and, and they survive the end of the world and all that kind of stuff. But more than likely, you would have a scenario like you're talking about is that the poop hits the fan and there's a lot of, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people that say, Todd, I don't have a place to bug out to. I don't have a retreat. I can't afford it. You know, I'm going to be stuck in my home. And so yeah, I think that's a very important idea is like, how do we rally the people? Now, I've got ideas of what I would do in my own neighborhood, right? Uh, how I would do that. Have you ever thought about how you would get to that point? Uh, not just, I mean, right now we can do recon, we can ask questions, we can get to know our neighbors, we can invite them over for hot dogs and barbecue and all that kind of stuff. But if there was a poop hit the fan scenario, how would you know? How would that community start to form? Uh, what ideas do you have around that? Well, one of the things is if the poop hits the fan, as you say, one of the things we're going to lose is mobility. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, if you got a cranky neighbor. You can avoid them. You can drive 20 miles to go find a person that you like, and you can talk to them. Uh, but in a, a crisis situation, you've lost that mobility. You're really kind of stuck with the hand that you've been dealt, the people that are right around you uh, within walking distance. That's kind of your your resource pool. Unless, like you say, you had the mutual assistance group where you all uh, got the message, alas, Babylon, and everybody heads out <laughs> to uh, the redoubt. Uh Unless most people aren't going to have that. And uh, from what I've been reading on other articles, a lot of people have trouble coming up with a mutual assistance group, mm -hmm. largely because they're separated by a pretty fair distance. Mm -hmm. So if did, things did go bad and they all lost mobility, getting to that bug out location to be the happy group of 12, you know, it's, uh, 
it's long odds. Mm-hmm. So more than likely, you're going to be stuck with, well, it's, there's even a, movies that they sort of like that, like, uh, well, they got silly after a while, but like the uh, the disaster movies in the 70s where you'd have people all trapped in a, a building or all uh, the Poseidon adventure, they're all trapped <laughs> in an upside-down cruise ship. The idea was you just hit a collection of people who are just ordinary people, and now they're a group and they have to start working together. Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to happen with you and your neighbors. Mm-hmm. It might not necessarily be the immediate house across the street, house next to you. could be a little further down, but it's going to be... A local proximity because you're going to lose transportation so you're stuck with whoever's right around you mm-hmm. yeah now i i think um you know, you're right on that on that uh well one of the things that i have thought about is if we were ever caught in that situation is uh immediately going to people and not necessarily media but let's just say the event happened whatever that was right and uh you were uh, able to let things kind of sink in and you would call people around for uh, some kind of meeting. And, uh, hey, we're going to meet over here at the park or we're going to do this here over here at this corner and uh, we're going to have some information about what's going on. And then from there, starting to build a list of people like, hey, what do you do? What are you, what are you good at? Are you, you know, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, you're an engineer, you're a this, you're a that. And start building those types of things because that's going to definitely be needed in a situation that uh, if a true event happened and, uh, you know, uh, the poop hit the fan and all that kind of stuff. Plus, people would have to start tearing up their yards and, you know, you'd have to start, you know, get rid of the grass and, and start using that for food production and, and defense and, and all those types of things uh, that would happen. Now you've uh, I, I know that you are an author and you have some books uh, out there. You've written uh, some books, and so this idea of community has come around, or we started talking about it because of some of your books. So can you t- talk just a little bit about um, why uh, or the need of community within your books, or give us a little bit of background there? Sure, uh, I ended up creating, I guess, uh, a set of characters that sort of lived out what I was talking about, that there's uh, a mysterious worldwide grid-down event. Nobody seems to know what it is, and to some extent it really doesn't matter because the power's just gone. And there's a group of people. It's a small town. They sort of know each other. The main character, he's not really too involved in town. He kind of recognizes people, but they end up, forming more of a a tight-knit community because some of them have skills. There's, uh, you know, the town selectmen, they're still sort of the uh, de facto legislative body. Uh, But they start banding together as neighbors, helping each other out. Some of them have horses, so they start helping out with things like that. So the the scenario was more built around the idea, well, what, what, what would you do or what would ordinary people do if the event happened and now you're all stuck, what are you going to do? And, you know, part of the premise was if uh, no more trucks are coming and FEMA's not going to come and help, basically you've got to figure out what to do with whatever you've got on hand. That's what you've got. And uh, in my scenario in the, in the books, uh, the event happens in mid-October. So they're all looking forward to going into winter with not a whole lot. So they've got to figure out what they're going to do. And now there's people who are less capable, people who are more capable. But 
again, I tried to write him more as real people, which means sometimes they do dumb things. Because I've had some people who'll comment on the book and go, oh, that guy is so stupid. He should never have done that. Well, he's a real person. Real people make stupid decisions. <laughs> That's right. And then they got to live with it. And uh, I started reading, well, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, uh, you'd mentioned uh, Rawls, mm-hmm. you know, Red Patriots, and was not overly impressed with it because <coughs> it just seemed a little too handy that whatever they needed was there. And I thought, well, what would happen if the thing bad things happen and I don't have everything I need and I don't just happen to have a stack of six-inch pipe that I can make mortars out of, mm-hmm. you know, that's uh, people having to improvise and make do with what little they've got or just not have. And uh, so the scenario was more geared around uh, using real character, real realistic, I should say, characters rather than, like, say, some stories, uh, they're all ex-military sort of quasi-ninja types, so of course they're all really good at martial arts and sniping people in the dark. And So it's, you know, they happen to have a sort of miraculous set of skills, and I thought, well, no wonder they survived. They've got all those skills. What would an ordinary person face? Mm-hmm. And so the stories are kind of that scenario of, well, what would happen if ordinary people had to face, face an SHTF situation with just whatever it is they've got on hand? What are they going to do? So I played it out, and them becoming more of a community was kind of a byproduct of that. They, uh, they, they banded together. They needed each other. They helped each other. So there you go. That's in a nutshell. That's that's great, right? Because yeah, a lot of the um, a lot of the, the prepper fiction dystopian novels that you read, all that stuff, um, they do the people that are there. There's always one or two or three preppers that you know that are always at the top of their game and the, the person that you would want uh, on 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 your team. And so uh, you know, it, it's always they always have that, which is good. And, you know, there's a lot of preppers out there that do know a lot of stuff. But I like the fact that you have a group of people here who get caught off guard that this event happens. And how do they get by and and get through life? Um, You know, in the characters that you have there, uh, is is there someone that's your favorite? Maybe you base this person around someone specific? Well, the uh, the answer is sort of. uh, (laughs) It's hard. Not to take uh, people that you know and use their mannerisms and uh, and things. So some of the characters are kind of patterned after people I know or knew in some cases, uh, but they're still fictionalized because they are doing things that haven't happened. So uh, it's still fictional. But yeah, there's there's favorites in there. Of course, after you've written them all, it's like I I sort of know them anyway. So they're all little family members, and uh, even when my my wife was being the uh, the proofreader. She was going through. She was all worried about some of the characters. He <laughs> got them with them. Yeah, I, I you've you've written in series, and so um, what I what I want to do is I want to if um, I'm going to go ahead and share that with uh, with Facebook here as uh, as people are there, and uh, it looks like you have. Um, you know, you've written in series, and the the book is, um, or the series is, uh, Siege of New Hampshire, and yep. uh, I love series because they uh, they carry over characters, and they um, 
you know, they, 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 you tend to, like you said, they become family members in, in your idea. And I hate it when I read a series and the people that are, uh, that are in the series or the series ends, right? Because it's like, wait a minute, I want you to continue doing, uh, doing this, this series. I want to know how this plays out. I want to know what happens and where it goes from there. Um, you know, have you had anybody ever, uh, respond to you, send you any email or, or feedback on on some of these people, and like don't don't kill this person off, or you know I really like this person, I really identify with this person. Have you ever heard any of that kind of feedback? Yeah, I've I've gotten uh, kind of conflicting ones on that, uh, but that did happen. That's sort of what prompted book four because I wrote the end of book three it was kind of like ta-da, like you say, the sunbeams open up in the clouds, angels. Uh, that there, I've, I've written my ending. Now it's a happy ending. Everybody can uh, go on live happily ever after. And then I had some readers go, "Well, you can't stop there. What happened to Susan?" <laughs> you know, they want to know. They uh, they kept pushing, and I thought, "Well, I had thought about that." So the uh, the fourth book kind of answered a lot of their questions. And of course, after the fourth book was done, they said, "Well, that's not enough. Now what happens?" <laughs> but. Uh, as a, for instance, the Susan character, I know in book one, she comes across as being, well, and she's written as the sort of totally clueless city girl. And other people had commented and they said she should have died. You know, <laughs> that she was just too stupid to live. And I thought, well, that's how she's supposed to start out because she gets her own book in book four and she's a whole lot more capable. So she's had a lot of growth through the experience. And so that's kind of part of the the background story is that an ordinary person who really was pretty stupid can get better. You know, and you're, it's not hopeless. We can learn. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you've got to learn quickly, or you're going, like you said, you're going to die, and you're going to be able to adapt and all that kind of stuff. Which is uh, <laughs> that's uh, you know that's an understanding that we need to take away. People are going to be able to adapt, and, and those people that are, are, well, let me say it this way, those people that are able to adapt, those people that are able to be flexible, are able to to, to navigate the, the poop hit the fan that way, will be able to uh, you know, to survive and will be able to go on and will be able to have better options than that. So it does make sense that you have a character who at the beginning seems clueless, but you know, starts to build skills and, and adapt. And if you can imagine, if you were thrown into a uh, SHTF scenario, you know, for a long term, you would have to pick up things pretty quickly. So that makes a lot yeah. of sense. And uh, like you had mentioned, it's sort of, uh, well, one of my intentions with the book series was to be a little more optimistic because a lot of the uh, post-apocalyptic fiction that I'd read was really kind of gloomy. Mm-hmm. and uh, gloomy and or just sort of violent for the sake of it. Uh, but I thought there was sort of a sense of if you're not a super prepper ex-military ninja type, you're toast. Right. And I thought, well, there's a whole lot of us out here, out here who are not that. And I didn't particularly imagine that I would be toast, but you also don't really necessarily see that in real-life crisis situations. Like in Puerto Rico, they had quite a crisis. They still have it in some areas. Mm-hmm. They don't all have to be super ninjas to be dealing with what they've got to deal with. And people are coping. They're coming up with something. They're making it by. So ordinary people, they can deal with it. So I was trying to project some of that optimism that 
yeah, it can be a bad situation, but with a little bit of resilience and, like, say, the community, ordinary people can get through. So trying to be more upbeat instead of uh, gloomy. Awesome. Well, I, I was looking at Amazon, and your Kindle books are very affordable. I mean, they're like two dollars and ninety nine cents. So, uh, man, that's that's a you know a lot of a lot of books there for what I mean under ten dollars you can get, uh, or just just a little over ten dollars you can get that whole series. Um, what else will people find if they read your books? What what else will they find that um, w- would really kind of speak to them? Well, some of it is uh, that resilience, but looking for something that you, well, I shouldn't say looking for, finding something that was really pretty ordinary and you wouldn't have thought anything of it beforehand and you certainly wouldn't necessarily have noticed it. But in the crisis situation, part of that resilience is developing more of an eye for, hey, that's something I could use. Or in the cases of uh, people, there's, there's a character, I think she's in uh, book three, that uh, is pretty much uh, a sort of useless artist type. Uh, but the, uh, the main character sees past her uselessness and sees that she's got skills that the rest of the group could use, not making art per se, but uh, finding resources where you didn't necessarily imagine them. So it's mostly that... You know, have a resourceful eye. Mm-hmm. But in as we get ready to close, there was one thing that we did talk about earlier, and uh, we really didn't bring it up um, earlier in the interview. But I, I do want to go back to it. And you mentioned, you alluded to it, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit about having skills, having that ability um, when we're in a situation like that. And I know that I've been talking about this recently. Uh, you know, having multi streams of income, having side businesses, having a little side gig, something that you can do. Um, one of the things I know that we, we kind of went back and forth on, uh, chatted about, was having a skill that you can take with you into a scenario like that. Something that would be, um, that would, that doesn't need the internet, that doesn't need electricity, that doesn't need, you talked about the plumber. You know, uh, being in education, one of the things that I have told people is like, if I had to do it all over again, I might go into plumbing because you're always going to need a plumber, whether you you have electricity or not. And it's one of those things that they're having problems finding a plumber. I I read an article that Texas is uh, lowering the uh, the requirements to have master electricians because people aren't going into the field anymore. They're, they're not do, becoming master electricians. And so, you know, you have these types of things. Now, of course, electricity would be, you know, out if there was really a poop at the fancy scenario. But uh, what, what kind of thoughts do you have along those side, th- that idea of having a side business, maybe now a gig, a side gig now that you can take into, um, you know, an SHTF scenario that could benefit you and your family? Well, uh, one that I know there's a few people around here have uh, been raising chickens and selling eggs. So they've been doing that as a side thing that I, I can't imagine they sell a whole lot. Well, they don't sell any to me because I get my own. But, uh, you know, so they're doing a little bit of raising eggs on the side. Well, obviously, if the poop hits the fan, having some eggs is going to be a handy thing. So they've kind of got a, a translatable source. But like you say, you could have a side gig where you, uh, well, I don't know, you repair 
boom boxes or megaphones or something and thought, well, you know, later on after the poops hit the fan, nobody needs that. So they're not going to need your side gig. But, uh, well, what was one of those I was talking about was uh, like welding. Now, now, granted, you're going to have to have some power. You'd have to figure out how you were going to do that. But if you had a skill at welding now, maybe you're just fixing guys as lawnmowers and just doing little odd jobs with it, but it's going to be a skill that you could use after the fact. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I've got a another friend that's uh, a home builder. Well, that's his regular job, but in a uh, crisis scenario, somebody who knows how to build things, he's going to be a useful guy to have around. So it's kind of a tough sweet spot to have of something you can make money with now that you could use after the crisis. Because right now we tend to have a lot of surplus income. So we, uh, we're into buying tchotchkes and uh, doing kind of frivolous, luxurious things. That's what people will pay for. But, you know, after the fact, not so much. So you're going to, even if you don't end up with a side gig, it could just be uh, a hobby that you do. Mm-hmm. You know, pick a hobby now that's going to be a marketable skill later. You're right. You know, when you said welding uh, without electricity, I was, and I mentioned the colony early on when I first started uh, the Facebook Live. Uh, part two or season two of the colony, there was a guy who welded, and of course they didn't have electricity, but he had um, he had a, a car battery, and he was using that to weld. And they made some really great stuff, you know, um, to to help them survive. Uh, just by that and so i'm not a welder i couldn't really speak to the whole setup or whatever but i remember it was just a, a battery uh you know a car battery that they were using to to get the the power for the welding and uh that that seemed to to work and all that kind of stuff so as we as we close out what kind of parting thoughts do you have for those that are that are listening and those that will listen to this you know later on about community and being prepared you know what, what kind of closing uh thoughts would you like to leave us with well, kind of like I had mentioned earlier, just as a, an overall theme is that you don't need to be a super ninja and uh, you don't necessarily have to be the mega prepper with 25 years worth of freeze dried food. Uh, ordinary people can survive, too, because if you look at the, a lot of the crises that we've already gone through, it was ordinary people that survived. Mm-hmm. So uh, take some solace in the fact that the ordinary can do it, too. Yeah. And we have years of history, right? We have oh, yeah. years and years of history that people did it. Now we don't we don't have those same skills, but we know that it was done, and so you know it, it is very possible to bring those and to translate those into where we're at today. So very important. All right, uh, Mick, is there anything else you'd like to to leave with? What do you have coming up on the horizon? Do you have, uh, are you done writing books? You've written four books and you're done? What do you? No, no, I'm uh, I'm working on book five because they said I couldn't stop at book four. (laughs) Okay. So uh, working on book five, got some other book ideas that are uh, not directly related. And I'll find out if I have to do a book six after I do book five. I don't know. Depends on what the fans want. All right. But yeah, there's always there's always something to do. There's not even enough time to play with the toys I've got. All right. Well, you, yeah, you've got you got those books, and you also have the blog. Uh, I've you know I've read your some of your articles on uh, the podcast, and uh, you have some blogs here about your broody hens uh, because you do live on a homestead and you garden and you do all that kind of stuff. So uh, you know you're, you're blogging, you're writing, you got a lot of things going on. So uh, you know I would recommend that you go on over to 
uh, mick-roland.com to uh, to check out uh, Mick's uh, Mick's website. Check out his books. Check out the reviews on Amazon. I've linked to that in the description. And so uh, you can go see, uh, get a little bit more information there. And uh, Mick, I just want to say I appreciate you coming uh, to, you know, spending your your Thursday night with us here on Facebook Live and sharing your thoughts and ideas about uh, community and how important that is. And then the fact that I know that it, it it's, it's going to make a lot of people feel better because knowing that you're not you you don't have to be military you don't have to be you know you're that super ninja you don't have to you know have all the 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 bells and whistles and the 25 years of preparedness is like wherever you are right now in preparedness just you know start if you haven't started start if you haven't if you don't have the big food storage well just start adding you know you canned food and start there start somewhere right and so uh so we have that uh you've given us that that understanding i, I know that i can say it and other people can say it and i try to let people know that i'm just a regular guy I, I, I live in the suburbs, you know, and, uh, you know, I understand preparedness. I want to be prepared. I, I have a family. I want them to be prepared. I want to take care of them as well. And so uh, I appreciate you spending your time with us this Thursday. Yeah, happy to do it. Well, everyone, that's it for this special bonus episode. Hey, I hope you get a chance to go check out Mick's website. It's over at mick-roland.com. He's got some great books, some great writing. He's also done some really great articles. And so uh, you can check out all of his stuff at mick-roland.com. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. All right. So that's it for this special uh, bonus episode. I hope you had a good one. Peace.